Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome back to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Jerusalem Dempsis and I'm joined today by The Atlantic's Derek Thompson. Derek is a fantastic writer who I've been following for years. He covers economics, technology, the media, and over the pandemic, he's done a lot of thinking, reporting, and writing on the rise of remote work and how he thinks it's going to impact the economy. A lot of people have been talking about remote work, about whether it's going to be persistent. But today I'm interested in diving into what happens if it is persistent to the urban geography of the United States. If a much larger proportion of the workforce goes remote, how does that affect where people live, local politics, the climate? Derek, welcome to the show. It is great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So before we just dive into all the changes that we've seen, I think it's worth taking some time to talk about why cities are the way that they are. Um, There's this concept that economists refer to as agglomeration economies, and that term contains a lot. But, you know, essentially it's the benefits that come about with clustering for firms and for workers. This is the reason why cities really exist. And there's a bunch of reasons for this, of course. There's sharing local infrastructure. There's matching between firms and workers. So like if you're a worker and you're like a biomedical engineer or something, you want to live in a place where there are tons of firms that can take advantage of that talent so that you can like bid between them for a higher wage or to find a better fit or whatever it is. And then for firms, of course, same thing is true. You want to live in a place where there are tons of workers who have the specific specialized skill that you're looking for. So you don't have to just hire someone who has a biology degree, but you can hire the specific biomedical engineer with the specialty and the thing that you're looking for. And of course, that, of course, reduces wages for you if there's a bunch of those in the area you're working in. And then, of course, there's a bunch of other things, too, like amenities that from living in a city are really attractive to young college graduates, and that draws firms as well, um, because that's where the labor pool they're looking for is. But, you know, this is something that's been true for a really long time, and it's been increasing in importance in the United States. I mean, these are the so-called superstar cities, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, have been growing in importance. And this is not a new conversation about how technology is going to affect remote work, right? So the internet, the smartphone, (laughs) other kinds of uh, information technology systems have come into play, and every time time, we hear this conversation of like, cities are going to be declining because of this. People don't have to live there anymore. Agglomeration is not going to be as effective. So we didn't see less agglomeration. We saw more with these technologies. But you think this time is different. You know, in February, you write this piece called Superstar Cities Are in Trouble. So can you explain why is this technological change different? 
I think, first of all, that was an absolutely fantastic summary. So uh, wonderful <laughs> job uh, explicating agglomeration. One way to sort of summarize what you just said is that agglomeration is the life of distance. And for 30 years or something since the beginning of the internet, people have been predicting the death of distance. So the life of distance is the idea that the city is everything. Closeness is everything. High-income people live next to high-income industries, and they all got to pack into one metro area. The death of distance is this idea predicted since the beginning of the internet that, nope, that's not going to happen. That if you want to work for a company that's based in San Francisco, you can live in San Francisco, or you can live in Oakland, or you can live in Dubai. Because they all have an internet connection, and the work is happening on the internet anyway. So people are just going to move wherever they want and work wherever they want, and distance will be totally irrelevant. And I think it's really important to point out, like whenever I find myself in sort of doing the, the futurist mode, I want to temper that by looking at history. It's very important to point out that people predicting the death of distance were wrong for about 30 years. And it's really funny because in February 2020, this is like three weeks before the pandemic officially started for a lot of people's sort of consciousness, I walk into my boss's office, uh, Don Peck, editor of The Atlantic's office, and I say, Don, I have this really big idea for a magazine column. I want to write about how remote work is about to take off. The Federal Reserve has looked at this and they found that actually kind of quietly remote work has tripled in the last seven years or so. It's starting from a really low base. That tripling doesn't look particularly impressive, but people are starting to do this. They're starting to say, I can do my job from New York in Indianapolis. I can do my job from San Francisco in Austin. I think this is going to take on. And then three weeks later, I get totally scooped by the novel <laughs> coronavirus, which completely obliterates the world and makes my hypothesis like the most boring hypothesis in the world. Like, oh, we're going to see a rise in remote work? Like, surprise, surprise, everyone is stuck in their basement. Of course we are. <laughs> so important to point out, A, that everyone predicting death or distance was wrong. B, that there were people like me, a lot of people like me, seeing in February 2020 that something like this might happen anyway, and then see that the pandemic, as it did to so many trends, accelerated this thing dramatically. So what we see now in the data is that remote work is significantly elevated from where it was in February 2020 still, even though vaccination rates are pretty widespread among the white-collar workforce, even though they've fallen from their peaks like a year ago. And how exactly this is going to shake out geographically is, is really interesting. The first observation that economists have made that I trust is what they call the donut effect. So the donut effect, I think this was Nick Bloom at Stanford, looked at a bunch of different metros and found that home prices were rising significantly in the suburbs and exurbs of those metro areas, even as they were declining in the urban core. So inflation, housing inflation, was moving to the outer donut rim of these metro areas. And I can definitely see that trend accelerating for at least two reasons. Number one, even if the death of distance predictors were wrong for 30 years, all of us had to go through this 18, 19 month remote work experience in the knowledge economy, white collar economy. A lot of people didn't do remote work at all. And for the large part, it kind of worked. When I say worked, I mean like productivity didn't like fall off a cliff. A lot of people, especially introverts that I know, were much happier working from home than they were in an office where they were being constantly bombarded by conversations they didn't want to have. So it worked. You had a little bit of that loosening of the historical tether between work and home. And second, demographics. The millennial generation is the biggest generation in U.S. history. And the, I think, average age of a millennial is now something like 33, 34, 35 this is the age at which a lot of people move from urban cores to the suburbs anyway. 
So the confluence of these trends, the pandemic, which accelerated a lot of these moves, the phenomenon of remote work, and finally the demographic wave of millennials, I think should make us all fairly confident about the continued growth of suburban areas around urban cores. Now, where are the suburbs that are going to grow the fastest? I I think right now you you look at a lot of places that have been growing consistently for the last 10 years, and they've just continued to grow. A lot in Texas, a lot in what you could call like the sort of sun belt, the sunny swoosh from like the Carolinas to Florida, Texas, and up through the Pacific Northwest. Those have continued to grow. I think some economists like Adam Ozimek have predicted that smaller cities in, say, the Midwest might also benefit from the disconnected tether between home and work. A lot of people in New York and Los Angeles, San Francisco, moving to smaller cities in the Midwest. Those could benefit as well. But right now, long answer, quick summary, go, go suburbs. The suburbs are growing really, really quickly right now. And I think that is because of this sort of three-part phenomenon. The data is definitely bearing out the way that you're saying right now. But I think part of my skepticism about the persistence of remote work is just that it's not clear to me why these agglomeration effects would stop being so powerful once we've dealt with all the concerns around COVID. Right now, we have this obviously big countervailing force of people don't want to get sick. They don't want to die. There's like issues of of liability, of course, for companies being the first mover to come back. But once that gets normalized, which I imagine will happen, you know, at some point, hopefully in the next year or so, it's unclear to me why firms would see that it's in their best interest to keep people remote at any period of time. So why why do you think it's going to be a persistent shock? I think I would categorize everything I'm about to say under a very specific thesis statement that is sometimes misunderstood in the debate over remote work. And that thesis statement is that small changes can have big effects. So I am not one of these people who's saying that everyone in the white-collar workforce and everyone in the knowledge economy is suddenly going to work remote. That's not happening. But right now, about 20% of workers in management and professional services economy are working remote. That's a huge number. And that's a highly vaccinated population many of whom probably could go back to work or be in an office if they want, but they just don't want to. And as a result, that makes me relatively confident that the remote work phenomenon is a real and lasting phenomenon. One other data point that I just found yesterday. Indeed, the uh, job search website has found that the percentage of job postings containing remote terms has tripled since before the pandemic. Now, it's only like 8 or 9%, right? Not 90%, 8 or 9%. But still, it's tripled since before the pandemic. That's a small change that can have a huge effect. Think about the effect on transit revenue. If the number of tickets being bought for uh, MTA in New York or the Metro in Washington, D.C. or BART in San Francisco, if it's consistently, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent below what it was pre-pandemic, That's a really, really important change. You look at the fact that, you know, a lot of people, when they come into an office, they go out to lunch in a downtown area. They walk around the downtown area and maybe they shop before and after work and maybe throughout the workday. They're spending money in the central business district. Well, if you see a 15 or 20 percent shock in the white collar workforce that's commuting to work every day, that's a 15 to 20 percent revenue shock to those downtown urban areas' ability to pay the rent, which means that maybe commercial rents decline um, at the same time. You look at commercial real estate. If commercial real estate vacancy numbers remain elevated at the same 15 to 20% rate, that could also have a huge effect on pricing within central business districts. So these small changes, these, this 15 to 20% effect could have a significant amplified effect 
on all these other factors that are sort of critical parts of the urban economy. And we should pay really close attention to those spillover effects and not just say, oh, well, only 8% of Indeed's job openings mention remote work. So 92% of the economy doesn't touch remote work at all. Everything touches everything. And I think the spillover effects of the remote work phenomenon are a little wider than they seem in some statistics. Part of my concern about this is just sort of like this idea of of how this actually affects productivity. And I know you mentioned there hasn't been this massive hit to productivity that some firms were concerned about at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, you make this distinction between hard and soft work in some of your recent writing. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah, sure. Uh, So let me ground this in in research. Microsoft, when they realized that the pandemic was going to be a long-term phenomenon, did a study with some professors at the University of California, Berkeley, on the way that remote work changed how workers communicate within the office. And they found three big things. Number one, total amount of communication didn't really change. People were sending the same number of whatever, slacks and texts and gchats. Number two, the share of conversations within teams, within silos, went way, way up. People talked much more with people they were working with. And this kind of makes sense. You get so much more data from people when you work with them, like in the flesh. That seems like a kind of overly officious way to put it. But you you get more from people when you can actually see them. So it makes sense that you would have to over-communicate various things when you're far flung. But number three, really significantly, conversations between teams and between weak ties in the office, they basically fell off a cliff. So think about those conversations you might have in an office where like you walk by someone on the way to the bathroom and they really like football. And I, and I say, oh my God, like how about that Washington game the other day? How about the Dallas Cowboys um, getting beat by the Denver Broncos? What was that about? And like those kind of conversations just don't happen as organically on Slack. So one takeaway that I had, and I called the researchers and I said, what do you think about this sort of gloss on your research? You can divide work in two. There's hard work, which is what people are literally salaried to do. I'm salaried to write and research and call people and record podcasts. I can do all of that from my basement. I can do it at work. I can do it in Dubai. I can basically do it anywhere. The hard work can be remotified easily. But then there's something you could call soft work. Soft work isn't totally goofing off, but it's having conversations in the office that build camaraderie, that build a sense of teamwork, that maybe build psychological safety, a buzzword from Google, which basically means that I can share a crazy idea with you and I'll trust that you won't laugh at me about it. So you have a sort of higher supply of out there ideas, which over time should lead to more radical creativity. That might decline as well. So they said, yeah, the the pandemic was kind of like a, a bad, imperfect, randomized control trial of the purpose of offices, right? Like, an RCT for a vaccine. You have that control arm and you've got the placebo. And it's like, we're going to give some people the actual vaccine and other people are going to give the placebo arm goo and we're going to see, you know, what the effect is. The pandemic kind of did that with the office. You say, what was the office doing in 2019? What was the office doing in 2020? Compare them. Not a perfect comparison because the pandemic was a bunch of stuff, but a sort of interesting sort of uh, natural experiment RCT. And this is what the office does. The office does soft work. And the big then trillion dollar question is, how important is soft work? Yeah. Like if you buy like the Harvard Business Review theory, soft work is the most important thing in the world. Like people just gabbing around in the office, just goofing off. Like that is the seed from which will grow the tree of <laughs> next year's $100 million business opportunity, right? But on the other hand, I think it's totally fair to be skeptical of the idea that soft work is so critical. Maybe a lot of people, especially 
introverts, and especially people that are a little bit more sort of like self-directed and working on smaller teams, maybe they work just as well, if not better, when they're far-flung and remote. You know, this, I think, raises a question about like kind of like distributional concerns, because it feels like it's not really likely that everyone's going to react the same way to remote work, whether they're more productive or not. And I think that like the, the distribution to me is like new workers and younger workers and also new firms and younger firms versus older, more established firms and older, more established workers. It seems like likely to me, right, that if you're like a big company, like you've already, you you've, you know, you're Microsoft or something like that, a lot of your processes and your teams are relatively automated. They know who they're supposed to talk to. They're workers who have been there for several years years and they're like kind of understand the the landscape of what their job is and like who they're supposed to be talking to and if a new person gets added on their team they're like happy to meet that person over skype or whatever and it's not a big deal and it probably doesn't increase or decrease productivity that much for those kinds of firms for new firms that are kind of establishing a company culture and for new individuals who are kind of entering into a new company and you know i joined vox a year ago during the pandemic and you know i think it was like clear that i could do a lot of the writing and stuff from home but the idea that i have the same sense of like what the company is like and like what the actual actual like office politics or whatever are is like clearly not the case as someone who's like worked there. And I just wonder, like, it feels like potentially likely that you see these kind of larger firms, but for startups or for small new businesses, like, do you think it's likely they can start remote and still get the same kind of productivity gains that their like larger, more established firms already have? I'm so glad that you framed the question this way, because so often I find that the online conversation around remote work is divided between the boosters and the cynics. Yeah. And the boosters are like, remote work is just good, period. And the cynics are like, offices are just good, period. And it's like, no, remote work is like food. Some of it <laughs> is better for some people some of the time. So you yeah. made two, I, I, the distinction that I first made is about sort of psychological profiles. The extroverts, especially the extroverted managers that I know, are like, can I please go back to the office now? At the same time, I have a lot of friends who are absolutely introverted. And they're like, this is a dream. I, I don't want to gab about your nonsense at 12.30 when I'm on deadline. I want to be at home on my computer where I set and control my own attention flow. So there's a psychological distinction. Another distinction that you made, which is I think so smart, is the distinction between young workers and older established workers. It seems kind of obvious to me, and maybe you would disagree, but it seemed kind of obvious to me that like ground zero who, for who stands to benefit in the work from home economy is like a 45-year-old software engineer who used to work at his company for you know, 10, 15 years in a downtown area, but he's a dad or mom, and you can do the same work for the same salary from his living room or her living room in the suburbs, same work, less commuting, more time with family. It's just win, 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 win across the board. At the same time, companies hire people. And when they hire people, they want to bring them on into the work culture, not only because it improves the quality of work that's done, but also means that stars don't feel like they're so disconnected from the work culture that they just don't hop somewhere else because the work culture isn't just like, you know, a shared Slack channel and like, that's it. And there, I think it's really difficult, especially for legacy companies that weren't previously remote, to do that at the drop of a hat. It's really, really hard to move from an office-first culture to a remote-first culture. One thing that I, I will say is that some of my best friends are entrepreneurs who run remote-first workforces, and they hire dozens, if not hundreds, of people a year. And the way they do it is that they build a remote-first culture that has certain sort of cultural building exercises. So they have a lot of retreats, like a lot of retreats. Like before the pandemic, like maybe a retreat every like six weeks, 
two months. I don't know exactly what it was exactly, and it's different for different teams, but like really, really frequent retreats. Because if you're going to be far-flung while having a culture, while having a community, you want to have that sort of physical connection to people. Like, you can't do that in a pandemic. So it's possible that these are some of the things that the legacy, I'm calling them legacy, sort of office-first cultures are going to have to build into the hybrid workforce that's coming is this preparation for or anticipation of the inevitability of these constant retreats to keep people feeling like they're not just communicating with little baubles on a screen. Their their colleagues are not just Slack names. They're also people that they have like they can have real human connections with in the physical world. So we're going to go to a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to dive a little bit more into the weeds on where people are going to be moving and some of the ideas that Derek already brought up around donuts. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. And we're back. You know, you talked a little bit about how people were moving towards this sort of donut shape in cities, moving towards suburbs and kind of hollowing out of the inner core. But what we've seen during the pandemic is, you know, obviously people don't have a lot of um, certainty about what the future is going to look like. So they're not really maybe making the moves they would if they were able to say, I know that I'm able to remain remote for the next like five years or 10 years and that there will be jobs available to me to do that. So 
you know, there's obviously this difference between a full remote and also a partially remote work scenario as well, where people are kind of making, I think, the bet that like maybe if they're remote, they're going to be able to be like two days a week remote or something like that. But let's let's kind of forecast a little bit more here. So if there is a full remote scenario, work scenario for a significant part of the knowledge worker economy, like where do you think people are going to end up living? Like how far do people move? Given that the current data says that like people are generally staying within the same metro area, staying within the same state, like does that really change much in this new scenario? Yeah, let me provide three possible scenarios. We could talk about which of them we think are are most plausible. One scenario is that you say things are just going to continue moving the way they are. There's not going to be some new hockey stick moment after the pandemic is over. The pandemic was the hockey stick moment. So we should look at what's happening now and project that forward. And what seems to be happening now for the most part is that people who are moving are moving to suburbs of the same metro area. So they're kind of becoming telecommuters rather than commute to the office every single day for, let's say, half an hour, they might be more likely in the next six months after the pandemic is hopefully over, commute to the office two times a week for maybe an hour or an hour and a half. Another possibility is that as people realize that remote work is here to stay, they reconceptualize what they want from a city once they have a family. And I think it's important here to distinguish the conversation between like single 25-year-olds and married 35-year-olds with a kid or two. Because the single 25-year-olds, why would you not be in a city? My God, like, why would you not go to New York, San Francisco, Austin? Like, cities are just where the bars are. They're where the concentration (laughs) of restaurants are. They're where the concentration of single people are. So it makes sense for the 25-year-olds to stay in the urban core and for urban cores to maybe get younger. But if you're 35, you might say, all right, I work at IBM, I work at The Atlantic, I work at Vox. I work at a place that's going to have a relatively remote-friendly culture for the foreseeable future. Now that means the agglomeration link is broken, and I can make my decision based on a variety, on a menu of factors that don't just include that geographical tether between work and life. I can make it based on where my friends live, and that might lead you to just move to the suburbs of that city because you want to stay in the same metro area as your city friends. It might lead you to move closer to your family. So, you know, the wife's family, the husband's family is from Detroit. So you move back to Detroit and you just keep working at the exact same company. Nothing about your work life has changed. It might lead you to think, I really want to live somewhere where I love the weather or where I love the culture, totally disconnected from where the headquarters of my city are. So maybe that means you move to Montana. Maybe it means you move to, you know, Wyoming or Florida. You know, it it just scrambles the previously predictable agglomeration effect. I don't think that agglomeration effects are going to be replaced by one thing. I think the diminishment of agglomeration effects will lift this other menu of variables that determines where people live. And so where people live will just be like a little bit more chaotic, um, a little bit more random. So let's disentangle some of these places because there's all, a lot of different kind of groups of cities and, and, and locations that are going to be affected here. So we've talked a little bit about sort of the urban core and what kind of occur there. And, you know, obviously these are places that would, would benefit from some kind of decreased demand pressure on, on housing demand. But where we're going to see increasing pressure is like really interesting to me. I think you mentioned um, economist Adam Osmek and how he kind of has this idea that it might be these smaller, more mid-sized cities that are, are going to see a boom here. And these are places that we're already sort of seeing kind of increased attention before the pandemic, places like Austin, Phoenix, or 
uh, you know, Miami and other places in Florida, um, but also like other cities like uh, Nashville, Tennessee and like Boulder, Colorado and other places that have significant amenity draws in addition to being um, reasonably sized cities already. But, you know, obviously, you know, we talk about housing politics a lot on this show because uh, that's what I like to talk about. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, it would be good to kind of reduce the pressure in some of these superstar cities. But what we're seeing in like the places where people are moving to is not sort of like the death of NIMBYism, but it's like and replication of sort of the same political problems that we've seen in superstar cities in these new places. So in the end, is it just going to be like just like a bunch of NIMBY cities that have like slightly less demand pressure all over the place? Or do you see as a, a sort of potential future here where that problem gets diminished in, in these places for any reason? The connection between remote work and NIMBYism is really interesting. So the NIMBYism that exists very clearly on the coast, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, the NIMBYism seems to me to be a combination of factors. One, it's that the some cities just can't physically expand geographically because they're bounded by water. I don't want to make that, make that like the most important factor. Um, that's not the only difference between San Francisco and, say, Dallas. But it is one factor. But one thing we clearly see is that as people of a certain income move to or concentrate in a rich area, they tend to resist changes to housing laws that increase density where they live. Like that, that there seems to be some kind of like nimbiest gene that can be distributed throughout the country, no matter where like the sort of upper middle class moves, rather than nimbyism being like a geographical feature of like the 818 or 202 area code. So it would not surprise me at all if we just see nimbyism extend from like the top tier of cities to like the second tier and third tier of cities as they become more populated. But at the same time, because there just is more space to build in Nashville and Dallas and Austin, uh, Houston, and because the attitude generally, especially, and I, I just know the most about sort of the Texas attitude has been more of the expansion of housing rather than the the sort of limitations that you see in a place like San Francisco and the Bay Area. I am optimistic generally about the fact that if remote work says you can take this job and move, then that allows people to move from places that have extraordinary restrictions on new housing construction to places with only ordinary constrictions on housing construction. And that allows them to move from higher housing cost areas to lower housing cost areas. And that overall is a good thing for the country. You should, you should want productive people to be able to contribute to productive companies and allowing them to kind of live anywhere and not have to live in some place with absolutely god-awful housing policies is probably going to be an overall macroeconomic win. I don't know if you have thoughts also about like how that could affect cultures of different companies if they're not all forced to be in the same place. I mean, people talk about this with media all the time about how they're kind of forced to be in um, or end up being in like New York and D.C. and the Cellar Corridor in general and how that has effects there. I mean, do you, you have thoughts on like what happens to the cultures of these companies if they're kind of distributed more evenly across the country? I actually want to, want to take it to a very related area, which is which is the culture of, of new companies, like the geographical concentration of jobs in these high-income areas with bad housing policies, I think is bad for entrepreneurship, right? Like, I'm looking at a stat from an article that I wrote, I believe, last year. 80%, 80% of U.S. venture capital goes to three states, California, New York, Massachusetts. 70% of all internet publishing jobs are either in the Acela Corridor, so Washington to, to Boston, or in basically the Western Crescent from Seattle to Phoenix, right? So, like, the vast majority 
of VC money from 2018, 2019, before the pandemic, was going to this tiny minority of U.S. geography, which means that the people seeking out great ideas were overlooking huge swaths of the, of the United States where actual great ideas might have been germinating, but for a variety of reasons, they just weren't getting that attention. Sort of having a remote first culture or allowing a little bit more dynamism or a little bit more fluidity of workers and entrepreneurs encourages investors to cast a sort of broader geographical net when they're looking for great new ideas. So I see that, I see the sort of the, the implications of remote work and entrepreneurship as being very positive. In terms of the implications on existing company culture, the reason I guess I, I sidestepped that question initially is that I think it, it fits into that, that sort of most unfortunate category of podcast topics, which is it depends. <laughs> I think that it depends very, very much on the sort of the psychological profile of the boss. Like, I think that there are just like some bosses that feel for a variety of reasons, like we just need workers here. You see it at Goldman Sachs, you see it at Morgan Stanley. They're like, I don't care about this remote work stuff. We're in office culture. You come to the office, that's final. You see other companies that clearly are communicating to their current and potential employees, do whatever you want. Like, we're just going to evaluate you on your falsifiable work, and that can be done utterly remotely. So I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to like the, the sort of personality characteristics of bosses more than anything that can be described macroeconomically. I guess one of the things, too, though, it, that I that I think about is obviously the like, cities are, are quite segregated on class and race and a bunch of different things. But at the same time, like the, the agglomeration effects have kind of forced people to live near people they may not otherwise have chosen to live near if they you know, were just picking based on what their comfort level was and what their past history of living in those areas were. And I, I wonder if there's also an, an issue of, of, of declining dynamism if you have people saying like, OK, I graduated from college. I'm from like Indianapolis. Like I can work anywhere. I'm probably just going to go home for now because that feels like an easy thing to do. Indianapolis is a reasonably sized city. It's affordable. My family's there. And it doesn't really force anyone to kind of move outside of their comfort zone. And then that has decreasing issues. I mean, there's potentially political problems. There's some political science research about how when people um, live near people that are different from them, whether it's religion, immigrants, different things, like it actually creates positive relationships and connections and, and, and increases tolerance and stuff like that. But also just from this dynamism perspective as well, it doesn't seem great to me that people are not having any sort of, you know, uh, financial pull to go towards uh, new places. Obviously, also is not great if everyone's financial pull is to tell them to go to New York City, but, you know, it, it's a balance. I think it was maybe three or four years ago that I wrote an article called um, America's Losing Its Mojo. And mojo is not a term of art. It's just a word that I was using to mean economic dynamism and uh, geographic mobility. So how many companies are people starting and how much are they moving? I'm a huge nerdy fan of the late 19th century, which is a period of just riotous invention and riotous migration. Like the population of Chicago like tripled, I think, in like 30 years. It was just remarkable how many people were moving around the country and making new stuff in the late 19th century. And we really just weren't seeing that in the late 20th century, early 21st century at all, until, frankly, the pandemic. Like, the pandemic really has been a, a rebirth of, of some mojo. You've seen business formation rise to multi-decade highs. People are starting new companies at a, at a really, really high rate, it seems. And they're moving more than they used to. And I think that's a great thing, too. I think that, like, I'm a huge fan at every level, uh, institutional and personal, with experimentation. I think that people tend to be very complacent 
in sort of modern wealthy societies. They they pick something, they do it for a long time, they don't really quit it, they don't really like change their life a lot, they build around comfort. Like there's a lot of wonderful things around comfort, but there's a lot of wonderful things around experimentation too. And there's some fantastic evidence that suggests that people that quit their jobs in their 20s more and move around in their 20s more earn more in their 30s and 40s because they've had this period of exploration where they figured out what they're best at and what they love the most, what they can work hardest at. So I'm a huge fan of what economists um, nerdily call dynamism and what I'm going to call mojo. I-, I love the idea that the detethering of work and life in cities that might result from some remote work policies allow people to downshift geography in their menu of options when they choose where to live and upshift everything else and feel like they can be a little experimental even when they're working for the same company. It's kind of fun to think about a more fluid America and, and the, I'm probably Pollyannish here, but the, the effects it could have on, on sort of political comedy and just idea generation. I think I'm probably the more pessimistic person in this conversation about this, but I worry, though, that it doesn't seem like we're getting people moving to, like, the heart of Tulsa or Denver or, or Detroit or whatever it is. We're getting them moving towards, like, the suburbs of, like, Phoenix and, and, and you know, Austin or whatever. And, of course, suburbs, like, have a lot less of that spontaneous interaction of like new people like you're often you're much more in your car which means you're like going from destination to destination you know you are self-selecting for neighborhoods where there's just like generally going to be fewer people because there's less density i mean does that not kind of push back against a lot of your uh, i think some of your optimism here it totally pushes back on my optimism it's the single best objection to my optimism remember when i, when I laid out sort of the three paths forward and i said Path number one, what's happening right now just kind of continues. And uh, people yeah. just moved to the suburbs of D.C. if they lived in, you know, on 14th Street. And uh, they moved to, you know, New Jersey if they were living in Brooklyn Heights. Totally possible that, that that's all that happens, period. And we don't get any kind of fluidity. What I'm trying to suggest is that my optimistic hope, I think, is best sort of articulated this way. A world in which our life is tied to specific cities by dint of the companies that we work for forecloses the possibility of the kind of intra-American migration that I think is really cool and could be really wonderful for a variety of economic and political reasons. So the door has been opened to this Pollyannish possibility that I'm describing. Whether or not Americans walk through the door is, to your point, a really, really big question and not one that is necessarily perfectly borne out by the evidence that we have. One of the things that kind of works, even if we have uh, uh, largely just kind of the suburbanization effect that could still kind of lead to the dynamism you're talking about is that we're seeing an increase in kind of like the the densification of the suburbs or like we're seeing a lot more businesses start up, uh, like like small businesses open up in, in suburban areas. Like this idea of like a 15 minute city has been popping up in a lot of places where people want to have suburban life, but also like have some sort of like urban-ish kind of city center. And, and I wonder, like, do, uh, there's also obviously these benefits to um, some of these declining cities in the center of the country that are like super affordable and where a lot of the existing housing supply that's available really is like places like Detroit or Milwaukee that are like losing population as people are being pulled to these places. Do you have any kind of like thoughts about like policy that can be done to kind of pull people towards these declining cities that would really benefit from population increases or that would kind of encourage suburbanization to go in a direction that would be more positive um, economically? Well, first, I think that even before you get to policy change, there's all sorts of reasons why this is happening already in suburbs of large metro areas, which again is, is to your point, not exactly a revolutionary change. But nonetheless, you know, Connor Sen, I think, is wonderful on this point from Bloomberg. Connor points out that, you know, you're seeing the growth of these townships in the suburbs, which is basically 
millennials developing a very specific aesthetic for what downtown areas look like, moving out to the suburbs, and then demanding that that aesthetic follow them, and then having these townships built up that have the same, you know, cocktail bar and, you know, hipster coffee shop and, you know, whatever retailer. And so essentially the city is following millennials out to the suburbs, right? So that's one specific trend that is, I guess, intra metro rather than intermetro because what you're talking about is how do we get this trend moving on an intermetro basis how do we use the opportunities afforded by remote work to revitalize slow growing cities with lower housing values one thing that i think is again happening before policy is that people moving to just be in cheaper areas or moving to move back home like to be closer to their families in you know non superstar cities i think that change is happening right now you could look, I suppose, at some of these, um, there's been like visa programs that have been suggested where, you know, people actually get like a tax benefit back from the government if they move to a city that has a certain kind of mid-tier description that the government determines, right? Like, yeah. I don't know how you would do that. Like, you know, average like income. The Heartland visa. The yeah. Heartland visa, right. So I actually don't know what the criteria of the Heartland visa are, like what cities are considered Heartland. Do you, can you tell me? It's like places remember? like Detroit and like Milwaukee. It's like basically a declining population is the major factor where you want but to get that, 10 is people that the, is, is that census statistic what they use to sort of draw the line between like you get right so anyway something has to be done in order to actually create a criteria here because you know Mm -hmm. you want people moving to specific cities i guess not others you have to determine how you draw a line around them but you could do that right you you could have that tax credit i want to be humble about the degree to which a policy like the heartland visa is going to be the determining factor in where not just a few people live, but millions and millions of people determined to live. Because if you're going to see the kind of revitalization of these cities that we're that we in this conversation are kind of interested in, you, you can't have five thousand people get this Heartland visa. You really need hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And I, to be honest, maybe you, you can you want to push back here. I'm not that optimistic that the introduction of a single tax benefit is going to be like the key determining factor where people live, like where they live, where their life is, where they spend a decade of their life and their children's life. Like you read the menu of variables that determines where we want to live for, you know, let's just call it like a sort of middle-class parent, where their friends are, where the work opportunities are, where the best school districts are, where they can afford housing, where transportation is great, where you don't have environmental problems, where you have convenience to some amenities in a city, where you're close to your family. Like, it's a long effing list, right? You throw Heartland Visa in there, and like, yeah, maybe it cracks the top, I don't know, eight? But like, I'm just not so confident that that's gonna be like a determining factor in like reshaping American migration patterns. I would say that, like, you know, one of the big questions that's, like, never been answered of urban policy is just, like, how do you get people to move to your city? People have plowed, like, hundreds of millions of dollars into, like, revitalizing downtown. Um, I mean, if anyone's seen the Detroit airport, I mean, the amount of money that went to the airport. It's, like, it's, like, what, the most beautiful airport I've ever been in. I was, like, my, shocked. My grandmother I lives uh, in Franklin, just outside Detroit. So I've been to that airport yeah. many, many times. It's great. And it's beautiful. And it's like they spent like tons of money, I think, after the recovery on it as part of the uh, recovery dollars and, and after the Great Recession. And, uh, you know, people did not move back to Detroit. It's like still declining population. Right. It and, turns out if you build a beautiful tram in the airport, people yeah. aren't like, God, I really <laughs> need to live forty in within 45 minutes of that gorgeous, gorgeous tram. Yeah, exactly. Well, we needed to do the experiment first to figure that out. Derek. So, <laughs> yeah, worthwhile experiment. Um, 
Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to go back to another break, but when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about climate and a little bit more about the politics of, uh, of the United States and how that could change with this sorting. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So density is very important, and it's important for reasons other than just, you know, a lot of people want to live in New York City, so we need to make it possible for them to live there. It's also important because there are climate impacts to how we live. One of the most important decisions you'll make about your own climate footprint is just like, are you going to be living in a place that allows you to take public transportation? Are you living in a place that can reduce your car usage? Um, Can you walk around different places? Also, of course, like if you live closer to other homes, like heating costs and cooling costs go down, you need to use less energy in order to do that sort of thing. If you have an office building that's like a giant office building that houses a bunch of different companies, they can share a bunch of those energy costs versus if you have like a bunch of different small buildings. So like there's a bunch of different reasons there. And one of the things that I think about often is just people who are leaving, even if we get kind of like this bigger dream of like people not just going to the suburbs, people going to different cities. When people move from San Francisco or from New York to an Austin or uh, a, uh, a Phoenix, they're not moving to a same level of climate impact city. Like they're moving to a place that is a lot less dense. They're often moving towards a bigger, more spread out home. These are single family home infrastructure that requires more driving and more commuting. But, you know, there are also a bunch of countervailing forces as well that might reduce commuting. Um, how, how do you think this actually ends up shaking out in the end? I, I think you did a great job of describing like all of the variables that are on like the left side of the equation. And I'm trying to like, you know, throw the equal sign in there and see like what's yeah. on the right side of the equation. <laughs> and I'm actually not entirely, I, I, I don't know. So A, everything that you said is right. Like just overall, density is better for the climate than not density. Overall, at the same time, it's better for the climate if people drive less. And I basically don't drive at all. I live in a downtown city, but also working remotely and throughout much of the pandemic, not traveling as much. That also has been probably a, you know, my individual contribution uh, to reducing global emissions. And certainly a world in which people say have fewer business meetings. This is, I think, the only thing that you didn't point out that is, that is, it is important. Airplanes, not great for the planet. There's really just no green way to fly period. Mm -hmm. And in a world where business meetings at large companies are a part of the culture, and it's just a part of life that you wake up at 4 a.m. and take a flight at 6 a.m. like three times a week, and you're flying around everywhere, 
that's not a good corporate culture for the climate. A culture where Zoom is considered a perfectly decent replacement for constantly flying everywhere to have in-person lunches is a net benefit to the climate as well. The last thing I want to throw on might just overshadow a lot of the geographical distributional changes that happened from the pandemic. And that's that electric vehicles are coming on like going to say a freight train, but like, I don't know, an electric train. Um, (laughs) Electric vehicles are absolutely surging a lot faster than a lot of people predicted. And it's very possible that the continued growth of solar and wind plus some experimentation geothermal could help to accelerate the decarbonization of the grid, hopefully, in ways that overshadow some of the distributional changes um, in the U.S. population. So, I mean, I'm sort of answering your question by not answering your question. Like, yes, there are a ton of variables here and exactly how it cashes out, I can't really predict. But my bet would be that the energy sector specific changes are more important than the future of remote work changes to the future of sort of carbon emissions on a per capita basis in this country. That makes sense. I think that one of the big concerns, too, I mean, you kind of raised the impact on transit earlier in the episode, but, you know, you need density for transit to be effective. You can't just, like, build high-speed rail and be like, well, it'll go every single stop, <laughs> like, across the uh, across the entire suburbs. And I think even above that, too, is, like, you mentioned electric vehicles, but one of the things I remember that became, you know, a big think piece topic a couple of years ago was just that like autonomous vehicles empower people to live even further away. And so do electric vehicles because, I mean, A, electric vehicles, they're less expensive on your wallet. You don't have to pay for gas and deal with that cost. And autonomous vehicles because you're not the one driving anymore. Like you can just like, it's not a big deal to commute as much. So these kinds of technological changes, which are often talked about in sort of like a greening way, like autonomous vehicles can um, increase car sharing and, and, and carpooling and stuff like that, can actually have those also countervailing benefits. And I think it's one of those things that's like, I, I agree with you, it's like really hard to suss out like where the end point is going to be here. But one of the things I think about is just like, yeah, people don't commute as much if they're doing remote work. But also at the same time, like if you're living just further away from city center, you have to drive more places to get all the things you need. Like you have to drive to the grocery store. It's not right next to the bookstore you needed to go to and pick up your kids from school and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know if you have thoughts on like whether there's like a specific policy responses that can like sort of preempt this or if if you kind of think this is just something where we're gonna have to really wait and see before um, before acting from the federal or the state and government perspective. I think the locus of the policy response should just probably be in the energy sector rather than in the labor sector. I am a huge fan of just throwing out all the corporate subsidies right now for the development of wind and solar, um, for throwing exploratory money into geothermal. I, I like nuclear, like, g- give me all of it. Like, <laughs> en- energy abundance, decarbonize the grid, electrify everything. I- I'm a You're fan like of all of it. nuclear in my backyard. Nuclear in my here. backyard. Yeah, that, I, that, that's my nimbyism. Uh, so I think that those policies and just the, the, the natural direction of uh, that market based on uh, demand issues and supply issues that exist outside of the policy space are just going to be more important than the individual decisions of people that move from the queue line in New York to the suburbs of Austin. Like, it is absolutely the case that, you know, you, if, you move, if you move from the New York subway to the suburbs of Austin, then, yeah, you are absolutely contributing more to carbon emissions. You're absolutely going to be driving more. You might fly less 
if your job allows you to Zoom, where initially you might have had to fly across the country to have those business lunches. So exactly how it cashes out, I can't quite say, but surely on a day-to-day basis, you're contributing more to emissions. I think, you know, it's really hard from a policy standpoint to tell people what to do when you seem to be like taking some kind of agency away from them. So, you know, I'm not a part of like ban cars Twitter. Like, yes, maybe in like some bizarre Earth 5, like we could try banning cars, but like here on Earth 1, it's just an absolute political loser. It's not happening. Yeah. Um, people love cars and they're going to use cars basically forever. We need to do our best to accelerate the electrification of, of vehicles. So that's basically where I, where I guess I cash out here is that the, po- the, the proper policy space is an energy policy. People are going to basically do what they want to, to be happy. And we need to find ways to essentially service their happiness by sort of decarbonizing uh, their lifestyles. One of your pieces actually had a really interesting idea about how this remote work could affect the national political landscape. And, you know, obviously we know this Democrats clustering in cities has a massive balancing issue with the Senate and with the Electoral College, of course. Um, so to tell us about your idea here, what, what, what do you think could happen? So, yeah, um, the, one of the most shocking statistics I remember finding in 2016 was that Hillary Clinton won Manhattan and Brooklyn by one million votes, which means she won two boroughs of New York by more than Trump won the states of Florida, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania combined. Holy like, crap. <laughs> that's, just, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. And it, it is just a fact that in election after election, liberals dominate in cities and they run up these huge margins in downtown areas and then they narrowly lose in sparse places. And as a result, it's very, very difficult for their majoritarian advantage to translate into representation majorities. And it is furthermore a fact that if more Democrats left those liberal enclaves and spread themselves evenly throughout light red purple America, they could more easily win elections. It is furthermore a fact that that's kind of happening now. New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, all of them have seen uh, declining populations in at least one of the last few years. The pandemic, I think, will over time uh, accelerate those trends, especially in Los Angeles and Chicago. And that they are moving to large metros in purple and light red states. They're moving to Phoenix. They're moving to North Carolina. They're moving to Atlanta. And yes, they're also moving to Houston and Dallas, which is sort of bluing a little bit slower than some demographic experts uh, predicted. But overall, if you sort of take this super concentration of deep blueness in a handful of cities and you sort of peanut butter spread it across all of these purple states, it should theoretically be a pretty good deal for Democrats. And you see, I think in 2020, Democrats now control all eight senators in the four corner states in the Southwest for the first time in like 70 or 80 years. So that's clearly like a pretty good trade for Democrats. I am hopeful of, but also uh, not entirely confident in, my prediction that over time, this sort of out-migration from these deep blue cities will be a net good for the Democratic Party because they will naturally populate themselves among some smattering of the following states. Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and maybe you could throw in like Montana and Idaho there. So over time, I think it's it's probably a good trend for Democrats. But I also think that speaking of what we we're just, just talking about, like r- remote work is one phenomenon happening inside of this Gordian knot of 10,000 other phenomena. I want to be humble about the idea that this migration shift is going to be like 
the sort of singular thing that tips Democrats into like, you know, Senate advantages in the 2020s, 2030s. I'm not confident that's the case. I just think overall, it's probably a good trade. All our Weeds listeners are going to be just headed for Southwest now after hearing this. But uh... <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who probably doesn't, I won't share his name, um, but his idea is that we should uh, have some sort of um, organized colony move into Wyoming and just yeah. <laughs> like have a bunch of Weeds listeners, essentially, and people who share Weeds political preferences get together on some Discord thread and say, hey, let's like 100,000 of us like move to Wyoming. It's beautiful. We'll live in tents for a while, you know, build our own houses and um, flip those two senators. So I do think that like, obviously, that's like the extreme example of what I'm talking about. But the well, minor- did this with libertarianism. So it's not really that far-fetched. Right. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Yeah. But the, the minor version of that, I think, is is sort of already happening. Yeah. One trend that I've been following in um, sort of these blue cities in red states is this uh, effort by state legislators to have like preemption laws that stop these localities from being able to engage in any sort of liberal activity. This is manifested in a bunch of ways. Like in Indiana, they tried to stop like just a bus line from existing, like bus rapid transit from existing, which was pretty extreme. And I'm not really sure it was super coded as as left wing in the local area since it was being sponsored by a bunch of businesses. And then to places like Tennessee, where the state legislature stopped a bunch of cities from enacting inclusionary zoning laws that would require new developments to have a certain percentage of affordable units when they build them. If this trend follows through, you know, this weird intermediary period where a bunch of Republicans are noticing this increasing power of the cities in their own states. There's going to be a lot of backlash there. I don't know if you have any thoughts on like how that might play out or, or, or concerns about that. I don't have deep thoughts. The the way I think it's going to play out is super effing messily. Um, David yeah. Graham at The Atlantic has written about the sort of blue city within a red state phenomenon and how he's observed it in North Carolina, where he uh, has, has lived for several years. It's a huge, messy issue. Obviously, you're going to see this in Texas as well. I believe that the major metro areas of Texas, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, El Paso, they're all blue if you sort of look at the political map in you know quadrennial election years. So this is clearly a- an issue in lots of states. How exactly it plays out, I think, is just like mass frustration and bizarre and somewhat unpredictable backlash effects. Like, I would not have predicted that as the blue metro areas, fast-growing blue metro areas of Texas move to the left, that Texas as a state would react by moving to the right. I just, I like, I just wouldn't have predicted it. And maybe that just makes me naive and too optimistic, but it is not a future that I saw. I saw Texas as purpling. I saw them yeah. as moving a little bit more toward the middle. But instead, politics is not gradual. It's Newtonian actions and reactions. And so the perceived growth of the of sort of uh, of, of liberal power caused the state legislature to move strongly to the right, like incredibly severely to the right on abortion rights. So I think the lesson to draw from Texas is that the 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 blue city red state phenomenon is going to be more like pendulum warfare rather than like a sort of linear trend towards centrism. Yeah. I think this is also going to give us a chance to really see how much the uh, liberalization of cities was that cities themselves were making people liberal or liberal people were just moving to cities and like what proportion of that if this plays out. But um, I'm excited to see. And I think we're gonna get a lot of good research out of the next uh, few years. I agree with that. That's all for us today. Thanks to The Atlantic's Derek Thompson for joining us. The Weeds is produced and engineered by Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is our deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Jerusalem Demsis. Subscribe to our newsletter at vox.com slash weedsletter. Um, I'll be back in your feed Tuesday with Dylan Herman. And thank you again, Derek. Thank you. 